Friends, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you continue to shape our thoughts and our actions. God, we pray in this time that you would continue to mold us and that you would give us a vision for this life that is far greater than the circumstances that are before us, a vision that's truly transcendent in its nature, a vision that gives us great joy for the sake of our good and your glory. Amen. I wonder what you are willing to pay. I wonder what you're willing to pay for something that is a great aspiration for you. Something you've been thinking about for years, perhaps. What are your highest aspirations for life? For some of us, perhaps we aspire toward a specific accomplishment, something we've been diligently working toward over the course of time. Or maybe an experience that you know will just be exhilarating. Or perhaps it's a place, a place that you've only seen in the internet or magazines or Instagram, a place that you want to go to, a place that seems out of reach for you. But if you were to get there and explore it, that would be incredibly fulfilling. Or maybe for some of us, it's a little bit more simple. Maybe it's a meal. A meal that you might spend a little bit more on than you otherwise would, but you know that this is truly a bucket list type menu. What do you aspire to in life? Maybe it's a vacation or a place you've always wanted to go. Perhaps it's a car or a house that you've been saving toward because you believe it will make your life better. For many of us, it might be our job or a job, a different job, a job you've been striving for, reaching toward as your career advances. What are your highest aspirations? I'm guessing that most of us would be willing to pay a high cost for those aspirations. That cost could be in the terms of money. For others, it would be the cost of time. For some, it would be long, hard work and the cost that comes with that. And for some of us, we might be even willing to endure a level of suffering if our aspirations were attained. Let me ask you a question. When you think about your aspirations for life, where does the gospel fit into those aspirations? How would you articulate that? In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul articulates that two of his highest aspirations for life are related to the gospel. And they tell us something. These aspirations tell us something about God and they model something for us for this life. The first aspiration that he talks about is in our text for today. It's in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I want you to follow along with me as we read and as we consider this specific aspiration. He says this. He said, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So against the backdrop of this entire book that teaches us about true and lasting joy, we see that this joy is expressed in terrible circumstances and there's a reason why it can be expressed as such. That's the driving question really behind this text. How can the guy who is in prison have a deep and abiding joy in this life that overcomes the nature of his circumstances? And the answer is found in the fact that Paul can have joy because of his aspirations. His aspiration leads to a specific type of joy. And what is that aspiration? Well, it's found in verse 18. That Christ is proclaimed. (laughs) That is one of his highest aspirations for life. That Christ is proclaimed. That sounds simple. (laughs) But what we see is that there are some who are attempting to silence the gospel, which makes it anything but simple. Verses 12 to 14, we see that there are those who are trying to silence the gospel. And we ask the question, well, why will they attempt to silence it? How will they do it? And what will the result be? Let's start with the why. Why do people try to silence the gospel? And the answer is because the gospel threatens the conventional wisdom of the day. Paul traveled throughout Rome, the Roman Empire, teaching Jesus as the Son of God and that he came to save sinners. The Holy Spirit of God brought Many to faith in Christ through this preaching. New believers committed themselves to the Lord and to each other. They formed local congregations throughout the Roman Empire. And as a result, these people coming to faith in Jesus, they continued, man and woman, boy and girl, to strive to know him and to make him known in their respective communities. And as the ideals of the gospel were communicated, they were very different than the ideals of the culture of the day. They're different than the ideas and ideals of the Romans, and they were different than that of the Jews. 
And so as the Christians begin recognizing Jesus as God's son and giving them new life and committing themselves to serve him and calling him their king and following him as such, this meant that they were not recognizing the emperor of Rome as divine. Nor were they giving him their complete allegiance. Their allegiance was to Christ. This was a threat to the Romans. Likewise, it also meant that they were not giving their complete allegiance to the high priest or to the Sanhedrin or to the Jewish temple sacrificial system. This was a threat to the Jews. And so Paul is viewed as a problem, (laughs) From multiple directions. He's viewed as a problem from the Romans. He's viewed as a problem from the Jews. But it really wasn't Paul. It was the gospel. The gospel was the threat to conventional wisdom and the common practices of the day. And therefore, the gospel and the gospel workers must be silenced. And this is really important for us to recognize because there's all kinds of implications for us today that we'll talk about in a minute. That when the gospel threatens the conventional wisdom or common practices of the day, there will be attempts to silence it. So how did they do it? How did they attempt to silence it? Well, they did it through ongoing persecution. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He's he's really talking about in chapter 11 his own weakness, physically speaking, but the strength that God gives him. But he talks about the physical and emotional nature of this persecution. And when he says this, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak that I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? All of these things happen to him probably five or six years before he writes to the Philippians. And now he finds himself imprisoned again. And what's the result of this attempt to silence the gospel? Well, the reason why he writes, (laughs) the joy that he displays is related to the result. It's related to the aspiration first and foremost But it's related to the result, secondly, as he says, I want you to know that this has actually served to advance the gospel, not to hinder it, that it's became known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest, whoever they are, that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
It's an interesting picture. It's almost like entertaining to think about. The Praetorian Guard or Imperial Guard, there were thousands of them in the Roman Empire. Of course, they were meant, they were meant to protect the emperor, but they had other duties throughout the regions. One of those duties was to guard prisoners of high value, and they did so through shift work. (laughs) So you can picture a detachment of Praetorian Guard taking their turn on shift with the Apostle Paul. As they sit there and the next guy comes in and the shift changes, well, guess what he's going to talk about today? He's going to preach to you for the next eight hours the same sermon he just preached to me. This guy's like the Energizer Bunny. Let's keep going. Shift change. Hey, guess what we're going to talk about today? I'm going to tell you all about Jesus who rose from the dead and can save you from the impending judgment. Hey, guess what we're going to talk about today? And day after day after day, all of the guard hears of this Jesus and the gospel advances. Beyond that, he says that most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in an attempt to silence the gospel, The persecution has actually emboldened the other Christians to share the gospel. This is the type of boldness that all Christians need through all time. This is the type of boldness that Christians pray for. This is the type of boldness I hope you pray for. You remember the story back in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are before the Jewish council, and they are speaking the word of God with boldness, it says. But the other Christians are starting to fear. The church is young. They don't know what persecution is going to look like fully. And so they're afraid. And what do they do when they're afraid? Well, it says that they get together and they pray and they ask for God's help and they pray specifically for boldness. Acts 4.29, the now Lord, they prayed, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And verse 31 tells us God answered their prayers. He answered their prayers. He shook the room to show them that he was answering their prayers. And then it says that they were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so here we see again that the gospel will not be bound This is the story of history. The king and the kingdom of God, the rebellion against the king, the nature of justice, the grace and forgiveness that God offers through Christ, the expanse of the kingdom even more. The gospel will not be bound. A few years ago, an author for The Economist, a secular News Magazine even describes this reality from a non-Christian perspective that no matter what happens, no matter what people try to do to silence it, the gospel can't be bound. He writes, tearing down the crosses from church spires may not sound like the best way to win a promotion, but in Xi Jinping's China, it might just do the trick. In 2014, a man named Jia Bolong, the Communist Party chief in Zhejiang, a, providential, a coastal province, oversaw a campaign to remove 1,500 crosses 
from places of worship within his province. Bibles were confiscated. Pastors were locked up. And it certainly did his career no harm. The longtime ally of the president was first promoted to a plum job in Beijing, and then in the following February, a new assignment as the head of office overseeing Hong Kong and Macau affairs. But as for the Christians in China, the government reckons that of the two of the 1.4 billion people in the country, that about 200 million are religious many of them practicing traditional Chinese religions such as Taoism, others long-standing imported religions like Buddhism. But Protestant Christianity is probably the fastest growing faith among them with somewhere between 38 and 44 million adherents today, which is about 3% of the population. That was up from 22 million just a decade ago according to the government's count. But that's the government's count. (laughs) And in China, you might know that there's a massive unregistered underground church that some people estimate to number as many as 60 million people. That would bring the total population of Chinese Christians to approximately 100 million people. And try to get your mind around this. If there's 100 million Christians in China, That makes the Christian population of China more than the Christian population of France and Germany combined. And France and Germany was the place, the epicenter of the Protestant Reformation. (laughs) That's amazing. About 10 years ago, I had a doctoral student who was a Chinese woman in the underground church. She took on the American name Joyce. She would fly over to the United States once a year to take courses, to continue to learn how to serve the Lord faithfully in her context. She was one of the ministers in the underground church and she would tell stories of what it was like. Worship meetings at night, gospel preaching, government persecutions, arrests, Bible smuggling, and the wildfire growth of the gospel. Men, women, boys, and girls were hearing of Christ and being saved despite the government's efforts to silence them and their church numbered over 30,000 people. (laughs) The gospel will not be bound. The implications are striking and they're really important for you and for me. It's important to know that when the gospel is a threat to the conventional wisdom and common practices of the day, there will be attempts to silence it. And the way that our culture is continuing to turn, you can expect this to happen more and more and more, even during our lifetime. So what are some of the examples of how the gospel confronts the conventional wisdom or cultural wisdom of the day? It's not hard to think of them. There are many We could spend the rest of our time this morning talking about them, but let me just list a number of them. There's a cultural notion out there that to be loving, you must not disagree with others on matters of spirituality or eternity. And therefore, it's better for you to say nothing than to disagree if you want to be a loving person. When you go to Thanksgiving dinner next week with your family, you want to be a loving person, say nothing about God. 
But the gospel challenges that notion. How about the ever-changing cultural definition of gender? (laughs) That is challenged by the gospel. How about the cultural definition and value of human life? That is challenged by the gospel. How about the regular and common desire by some of the population for war? That is challenged by the gospel. How about the idea that money and wealth and success equate to a person's value? That's challenged by the gospel. How about the notion that thinking people are those who are tolerant pluralists rather than loving exclusivists? That is a predominant cultural narrative today that the real thinking people, the ones among you who are smart, The true academics must be a people who reject the idea of a literal heaven and hell and reject the idea that there's only one way to be reconciled to God through the person of Jesus. Thinking people don't believe those things. Well, the gospel challenges that cultural notion. Or the idea that your greatest and wisest investments are on this earth. (laughs) This is challenged by the gospel. Or the idea that sin has a necessary consequence attached to it, challenged by the gospel. Or the idea that you can have real forgiveness, true and lasting forgiveness, and that it's accessible to you. That is challenged by the gospel. And there are times in this life and in this world where it seems like the gospel appears from our external perspective to be failing because the cultural narratives are so strong. But sometimes, just sometimes, that is actually when God is doing the most profound types of work. And so, friends, you need to decide. You need to decide in advance, how you will respond to pressure or even persecution that is meant to silence the gospel, you need to decide before it happens. (laughs) Because if you don't decide before it happens, then the likelihood of the pressure and persecution overcoming you and you sort of just being silenced, (laughs) that likelihood goes up exponentially, doesn't it? However, if one of your highest aspirations in this life is that Christ is known and you decide that you will not shrink under the pressure to be silenced, then God will use you in profound ways. That's the type of Christians that we need in the coming season of our country. (laughs) That's the type of Christians that God will use to expand his kingdom exponentially. But to be that type of Christian, you've got to ask yourself the question, where is the advance of the gospel in your list of aspirations. (laughs) What cost are you willing to bear for that aspiration? 
have you decided how you'll respond to the pressure? Because this is already starting to happen. (laughs) It's not happening. The silencing is not happening in the same way that happened in the first century. You're not going to be under Roman house arrest. (laughs) It's not happening the way it's happening in China. The church hasn't gone underground. But if you are a teacher in a public school that expresses concern about biological boys going into girls' bathrooms and you base that concern on a moral conviction of some kind, there's going to be a label attached to you (laughs) and the attempt to silence you. If you are sharing the two ways to live with somebody and you are sharing about the nature of sin and judgment for sin against a moral framework in a holy and just God, there will be a label attached to you. You will be intolerant and judgmental. If you are sharing the gospel with somebody, somebody at work or somebody in your family, and you mention God's grace and forgiveness and how beautiful it is that we can depend upon the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and he bestows all of his favor upon us because of that work, you could be labeled soft and weak and one of those people that uses religion as the crutch for your life. And those things may or may not have an implication for your family life or for your career or for your social standing right now, but at some point, probably in the near future, they almost certainly will. (laughs) But here's the good news, friends. The gospel will not be bound. (laughs) God uses people with the highest aspirations for life. People like Paul, people like you, People who view their life in terms not of temporary things, who view their lives not in terms of short-sighted things, who view their life not in terms of selfish things, but who view their lives in terms of an agenda by God in the world, and they make the gospel and making Christ known one of their highest aspirations, and they look at all of the circumstances of their life, whether they're in prison or whether they're persecuted, or whether they're just publicly shamed or labeled. And they look at that in terms of their life, their life in those circumstances, in terms of that mission of the gospel. And then something amazing happens. (laughs) They have this tremendous amount of joy that Paul can have even in the midst of prison. He goes on to say in verses 15 through 17, that some are attempting to silence, but some are also attempting to preach Christ with poor motives. (laughs) Some indeed preach Christ, verse 15, follow with me, from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is sort of a bizarre conundrum. Some people will try to inflict injury on the servants of Christ. And in this instance, it would appear that they're trying to do that by preaching the same gospel that Paul is preaching. Now, in other places, we see 
people who are preaching a different Christ or a different gospel. But that's not these people. They're not preaching another Christ. They're not preaching another gospel, which is really no gospel. Paul condemns those people in very stern terms. In 2 Corinthians 11, he calls them false apostles. In Galatians 1, he says, let them be damned. Pastors aren't supposed to say that. The words for those people are really strong because they're distorting the work of Jesus, leading people away from salvation instead of toward it. It's not enough for Paul to know that a person is preaching Jesus. He wants to know which Jesus they're preaching. (laughs) But that's not these people. These people don't receive that type of critique. Rather, he just highlights their motives and their disposition. They're not false teachers. They just have false motives. Their motives are poor. And it's contrasted with the people who preach Christ out of goodwill and love. And so what are they doing to injure him? Well, you can imagine that it might be due to some sense of competition or building themselves up selfish ambition, he says, making their name great and making his name low or denigrated, even though they're supposed to be on Team Jesus together. Sadly, that sort of thing still happens today. <laughs> that there's weird competitions that happen in the kingdom of God. And there's a difference. We need, to, we need to make sure we understand the difference between those that are preaching a different Christ and a different gospel and the rightful tension that's there versus those who are preaching the same Christ and the same gospel and have a wrong sense of competition with one another. But regardless of the attempt to silence and regardless of the attempt to injure, for Paul, the gospel comes first. And it is one of his highest aspirations. And it should be ours as well. And this is why he says it the way that he does in verse 18. Verse 18 sort of functions as, as the ground of this argument. This is, this is the conclusion in a sense. Well, what then, he says, I'm in prison. They're trying to silence the gospel. Others are trying to injure me. What then? What do we do with all of this? He responds, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I will express my joy Because my highest aspiration is being achieved regardless of the high cost to me. There is joy in suffering when it is suffering for the sake of Christ. That's quite remarkable. No matter what I'm experiencing, the gospel comes first. No matter what it means for my reputation, my highest aspiration is the advance of the gospel. No matter who is hurting me, I have joy because Christ is proclaimed. No matter how much pressure is upon me, I will be bold because God works through the message of the gospel and it will not be bound. Do you believe that? In your own life, do you believe that? Can you say that I have joy And the reason why I have joy is because my aspirations for life 
are the highest types of aspiration. To know Christ and to make him known. But friends, for so many of us, our highest aspirations are for something of infinitely lesser value. <laughs> In his book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer tells the story of an ill-fated expedition to the summit of Everest, Mount Everest in 1996. He mentions a member of the expedition named Yasuko Namba. Ms. Namba was a 46-year-old Japanese FedEx employee with a passion for mountaineering. She was an accomplished climber, and having reached the summits of the seven other highest mountains on the planet, there was only one left for her to conquer. It was Everest, the tallest in the world, and she desperately wanted to get to the top of Everest as well. This was her goal. This was her aspiration. So much so that Krakauer, who was a member of the expedition, tells how Yasuko was totally focused on the top. It was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed extremely hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Everest. And later that day, she made it. She accomplished her goal. She was the oldest person at that time to ever make it to the highest point in the world. Later that afternoon, however, Yasuko and a number of other climbers on the expedition were caught in a terrible blizzard. And as the icy winds blew, Yasuko succumbed to the exhaustion of her climb and she froze to death. Yusuko Namba died agonizingly close in time and proximity to where she had gained her greatest prize, her highest aspiration. And this helps explain her tragic mistake. Because according to Krakauer, Yusuko's fatal flaw was that she had adopted the wrong goal. Yusuko's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. What she wanted the most was to stand on top of the world and all of Japan cheered when she did. But this was the wrong goal. And a frequent and sometimes fatal mistake that many climbers make. The goal of climbing should never be to get to the top of the summit. <laughs> the successful climbers know that the goal is not to get to the top. It's to get back down to the bottom. And the tragedy that Yusuko accomplished her goal against incredible odds, she made it to the top, but as she poured out her energy to get to the top, she didn't save enough strength to get to the bottom. She failed and she died because she adopted the wrong goal. <laughs> she had the wrong aspirations. Friends, what if your life was counted not by how many proverbial mountains you've climbed? 
What if your ambition was not on how much money you will have or how much money you'll pass down to your kids? What if your life goals didn't include experience after experience after experience? What if your career wasn't the pinnacle of your life aspirations? What if your greatest aspirations for life transcended all of those things? And among them was to make Christ known. Then you too can have lasting joy regardless of the circumstances that you are in. Jesus gives this message again and again. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it. (laughs) And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What is your highest aspiration? How does that aspiration relate to your joy? (laughs) When you have aspirations that transcend circumstance, then your joy transcends circumstance as well. Let's pray. Father, this is so hard for us because we are so bound to what we see, to what we feel, to what we experience, to what we desire in the short few years we are on this planet. God, help us today. Give us a greater view of who you are. Give us a deeper conviction and motivation and desire to make Christ known. Prepare this church for impending pressure that will almost certainly come in the years ahead. And may your kingdom expand because your gospel will not be bound, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.